From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. C. difficile is the most common cause of infection in hospitals. Of people who become infected, 25% recur, which can be life-threatening for those whose health is already compromised. The key to Georg Gerber's recent research is a new method of both clinically and computationally understanding prevention and recurrence. On this episode of Think Research, Georg Gerber returns to speak with guest host Hardeep Ranu about his recent Translational Innovator Award and how his career in Hollywood shaped how he thinks about research. Dr. Georg Gerber is Associate Professor of Pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Do you mind just giving a brief introduction of yourself? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I'm Gail Gerber, I'm an associate professor of pathology at Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And my focus over the last you know decades has really been in computational biology. I'm a, a computer scientist by training, a PhD from MIT in computer science, and I also have a, an MD with training in pathology. And for about the last 10 years, actually, I think it's been more than that. Um, now time goes quickly. I've been focused on the microbiome. <laughs> And it's a really fascinating area for sort of the, the intersection of my interests, which are, are infectious diseases and uh, inflammation immunology and the computational aspects. It's this extremely complicated and dynamic ecosystem that's living you know, on and within us. It's, it's everywhere and has these uh, huge implications with, with human health. Okay, great. So my first question is, why did you apply for the award? What was your motivation behind it? Yeah, so, you know, we had been doing a a larger kind of clinical study on recurrence of C. difficile colitis. So C. diff is a a pathogen that causes severe diarrhea, um, primarily in people who have taken antibiotics. And so we were trying to understand, okay, can we actually predict who's going to recur? Because there are treatment options, but you know they're expensive. They're not without risk. So we'd, we'd like to know about 25% of people who, who get the disease will re- recur with it, when it within a span of, of about two months, often actually a lot faster. So we had started this study um, and we were looking at the, the, the microbiome, the the constituents, what the sort of composition of the bacteria, but it became evident to us, um, we were, the, the metabolic output of these, these bacteria is a really important um, factor in protection against the, the C. difficile uh, recurrence, um, as well as potentially looking at these as biomarkers that we could use diagnostically. So the, the catalyst opportunity was um, really interesting because this was sort of a new thing we wanted to add on was looking at the metabolites as well as developing um, new computational methods to, to do that. And so it was, you know, it, in the scheme of things with research, it's a relatively small amount of money, but it was a sort of new um, innovative project that wasn't funded under our, our existing study. The catalyst grant was really interesting because we 
we, we did attack, you know, both this clinical aspect and then a computational thing. And now those are, uh, you know, nowadays these are getting more and more tied up practically as you, you know, you have something clinically, it's complicated. We can look at very high dimensional data and needing that computational component. So, you know, I think the, the importance of the research was on, on the biology side, the biomedical side, was really understanding how these metabolites, these small molecules that are being uh, produced or transformed by the microbes are, might actually be acting to, to prevent the infection or, or recurrence of the infection. And then on the computational side, uh, the, the big question is, you know, when we have this much data and this complexity of data, um, how we can actually not just learn a model that predicts, so, you know, I give you a big you know, read out from a patient and it can tell, have some score predicting, oh, will they recur or not, but is interpretable. And so I can actually understand um, how that ties into the biology. This can actually be explained um, clinically with what's going on. And it, it turns out that is, is a really uh, challenging problem. There, there's a lot going on in, in the realm of machine learning, for instance, like with image <laughs> recognition, you'll see with the things in radiology, now in pathology, where you know, you're taking an image and it pops up with a diagnosis, but in the biomedical sphere, we, we want to know more. We want to know why the algorithm is making that diagnosis, what, what, what's going into it, the so-called explainability and interpretability. And so that was the, the sort of second part of the grant was developing um, new methods that would be interpretable. Where do you think you are now? And how far away do you think you are to getting to what you would, you know, talking about about getting to be able to print it out having this readout and say what are the predictability how you know when do you see that as a possibility yeah i, I think it's um with as always when you're looking at um human biology it's it's very complicated yeah. um you know the this the study we had was with a relatively small um, number of people it was, it was about 75 people, but when we sort of uh, winnowed it down, they're, you know, having enough samples at, at the right time points and whatnot, it, it's, it's even smaller than that. And so we did, um, with the study, identify um, metabolites that, that are predictive of recurrence. And some of them are uh, biologically really rational. You know, we, we can make very good sense of it. And, and some of them are quite interesting as to what the, the biological implications are. Um, so I think we, we made really good progress in, in terms of sort of proof of principle showing that we, we can find this. To, to get this to an actual clinical test, you know, we, we, the bottom line is we, we'd need more people. You know, we need to do a larger study on, on an independent cohort and show that this holds up because there's a lot of variability um, just in metabolites in the human population. And there's also variability in the disease progression, et cetera, et cetera. So that really would be the next um, step. But I think we made um, really exciting progress is is sort of showing that oh these these metabolites and it, the the sort of punchline to what we found is they're a lot more predictive than the composition of the microbiome, and and the way I look at that is sort of these are the end output of many different microbes that that could vary a lot it, between people, but sort of the the catalog of what they're producing 
um, is in, in, in many ways more, more tractable. And it's, it's also kind of the, maybe the end effector um, in, in a lot of the interactions. So that is, is a really promising line of research. And on the computational side, um, we made really good progress with showing that we can scale this method. So, you know, the initial method we had took about three days to run on a relatively small data set, like a hundred subjects. And the, you know, current method runs in, uh, it's like an hour um, on the same scale. So we're, we're now able to scale practically up to like studies with thousands of people. So we're sort of at the phase where we now, you know, we're, we're ready to go to the next phase, but we you know, need additional funding to, to get there. Presumably that machine learning, you would, um, that algorithm, you would make available to others to use it? Is that something? So it sort of benefits everybody who, who needs to run that kind of data and look at that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, this has been the policy in my lab for day one. I, I reduce, release everything uh, under open source um, licenses that comes out of lab. And my opinion is if it's, I, I know some people differ on this, but my opinion, if, it, if it's from sort of publicly funded research, I, I think it belongs in the public domain. Yeah. So it goes on to, so it's not just sort of the, you know, the sort of, initial focus or the main focus of, you know, is predicting C. difficile reoccurrence, but it's like, it's also, here's this whole algorithm that could be used in something completely different. So um, I think that's really a bonus, if you like, to this kind of a project, that it can also be used elsewhere and not just within this sort of narrow field, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I absolutely think so. I mean, there, there's, you know, one of the problems is it's difficult under the NEH model to get funding to develop tools and technology because, you know, the, the instances are so disease focused. Um, NIGMS is the one exception, and that's actually where I, I have an NIH grant where you can do more uh, tool building, but it, it, it's a huge thing. I mean, you look at the extent to which computational tools, or in some cases, experimental tools, have just you know, enabled so many fields of research, things you, you couldn't, weren't even imagined when they were initially developed. So, yeah, we have um, a paper that I, I keep hoping is going to be finished, but, but will be soon. Um, that you know presents the method. We have the the source code is going to be on GitHub, and we, we've gone further than that. We actually made an application that's that's easy to use. And in the paper, you know, we uh, test it on a whole bunch of different data sets. You know, it's not just our uh, our data. What did you use the money for? Fifty thousand dollars, like you know, you said, and we all know that it's not really that much money, especially it seems now in some ways it almost feels trivial um, versus, you know, 10 years ago when it, it would have gone a lot further. But how did you use it? How did you um, maximize those $50,000 for the most um, gain you could get? Yeah, so, you know, this supported primarily a um, new student in my lab. Um, honestly, there, were, there was some support also to other um, 
other staff in my lab, but you know, it, it's interesting on the computational side, but you know, even on the experimental side in a lot of ways, the, the biggest expense of, of course is, is people. And so it, you know, seems like a trivial amount of money in some ways, but you know, this, this uh, partially supported um, her, she got going in the lab. She's now, um, you know, on, on her way to doing this will be part of her thesis. So, I mean, in, in my opinion, um, you know, that, that to me, you know, if I, if I have money, that's sort of where I, I feel I can spend it best is investing in a, a young investigator's career. <laughs> um, you know, a, a lot of these big, uh, you know, I'm going to say this and it may be an unpopular thing to say, but a, a lot of these big experimental data collection expeditions don't necessarily result in that much. They're very, very expensive. Um, whereas, you know, training someone and actually producing it, that, that, that almost always is a worthwhile investment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good point. And I think that it's not something that people think about in terms of research. Yeah, it's really critical. And in, in the machine learning realm, it's, it's increasingly challenging because, you know, of course, our, our competitor now is not just other academic labs, but in many ways, it's primarily industry. And, you know, what they can offer in terms of salary is, is so much greater than what we can ever do academically. So, you know, I think what, um, you know, why people stay or, or will, will put energy into it is a combination of, you know, the projects are really interesting. They feel it's something that will make an impact on society. And, you know, they feel like they're really being mentored and, and going somewhere with their career intellectually. So, you know, that, that's, that's kind of what we can offer in the academic setting. But it, it's challenging right now with, you know, the Googles and Amazons of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Undoubtedly, but like you said, it's it's sort of one of those things where, you know, well, if that person is, you know, going for the money, that's one thing, but also what do they value in, in their work? You know, at the end of the day, what do, what is it, you know, is, is it sort of like, is it making money and just, work, you know, working for Google and getting all the perks of, of, of there versus, you know, the, let's say the intellectual freedom when working in an academic lab or, or you know, that there's a, an opportunity to pursue slightly different things if you wanted to in academia. I mean, I know nothing about, you know, what, what it's like to work as a programmer at Google or Amazon, but it, it would seem that that would be the case. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's always been uh, this tension in engineering that's you know different than say the biological sciences because there are you know sort of straight out of even out of just a bachelor's degree there are good career opportunities in engineering and some of them are in quite interesting I mean uh, many of these companies have very robust research labs where you know they really are innovating so it's not like just uh, an engineering programming kind of job, although, you know, honestly, the vast majority of the jobs are that. And so it's, um, it is challenging. And I think that the one thing I would say that they, that we have that they don't is, is the biomedical piece. I mean, you're not going to be at Google, you're not going to be seeing patients and, you know, interacting on that level. So it's, I think for people where that's where um, their passion is, you know, this, 
<laughs> this is where they're going to end up. But I think the other thing we need to be cognizant of as a field, and I run into this a lot every day, is, you know, yes, I think people are willing to work for less to have some of what you talked about, you know, freedom, feeling like they're making important contributions. But, you know, when that gap reaches a certain level where, you, you know, you can't support your family or, you know, really giving up just too much, you, you start to see a lot of leakage. And that's happened a lot now because I think in part just the uh, tech area, particularly in deep learning, has just accelerated so fast. And, you know, what's being offered in industry is is orders of magnitude more. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, at some point, you know, if you're being paid, I don't I'm making it up, $50,000, let's say, a year versus going to Google and being paid, I don't know, three times, four times that, at some point, you know, you kind of think, what are the benefits of going to somewhere where, you know, you want to be able to afford to buy a house, especially in Boston, I think, uh, you know. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's all the, I mean, Boston, San Francisco, New York, I mean, a lot of the metro areas, just cost of living is so high and it's a challenge. Um, this is, you know, people, uh, you know, ask me sort of what the biggest challenge is. And th this is the biggest challenge in the field right now is, is getting um, good people and, and competing with the options that are out there right now. In terms of, you know, the, the model that we have at, uh, within Translational Innovator is to meet with the investigators on a, you know, four to every four to six weeks, and then we get the, that particular cohort of awardees together every four months, um, what kind of value in that did, did you find? I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, it, it fell apart a tiny bit because of COVID. But when, you know, when, when it was happening, I, I think it was great. I mean, I think it serves a, a, a few functions. I mean, you know, some, uh, some institute, uh, you know, funding institutions I've dealt with, it, you, you kind of get the feeling that they they really don't you know really don't care about you and it just sort of they're they're dumping the money in in your lap or it's sometimes maybe not you know you get the feeling they're going to pull the money away you know it's just I, I feel like it's very anonymous feeling so I think yeah that's helpful you you really feel that um, you know Catalyst is uh, wants the project to succeed and you know I mean when, when we meet you're always sort of asking what what can I do here you know if you have obstacles so I think that's some really um, feels really good, is really helpful. But then I think the other um, aspect was was definitely meeting with the other investigators was 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 really nice because you sort of see, uh, you know, the, the the awards are thematic, so everything was on on microbiome, and I was sort of seeing these other um, projects and what people's ideas are, and and one of the awardees worked a lot on viruses in in the gut, and that was really interesting. Sort of have. I'm back and forth there because that's not not my area, but it's one I'm very interested in. We've actually done a little bit of work in that area, and you know, others I know were were picking my brain about computational things. So I think it's it's a great uh, forum to to exchange ideas and you know help advance the the field overall. Yeah, that's a, that's what I've heard as well from other awardees so that that it's sort of the meetings with the other awardees where it sort of helped with maybe expanding what they were doing or maybe thinking about other ways of and which their research could go and or adding on to what they were doing already it, it it certainly seems that that is something that people have valued and from a catalyst point of view that's exactly what we want is we want people from different areas different backgrounds to be able to connect with 
others in order to sort of push their research forward or into a different direction. Yeah, and I think, you know, particularly at a place like Harvard, it's really valuable because we're, we're very siloed. And, you know, I, I primarily interact with people, honestly, in my own department or on the quad. But, you know, if, if they're at, say, MGH or other places, you know, I, I don't interact with them that much. So it's really good to start breaking down some of those silos. So I have been just been, this is sort of separate, but it got me thinking. I had just finished reading this book called Range by David Epstein. And um, he makes the analogy between, you know, the Tiger Woods of the world and the Roger Federer's. So Tiger Woods, you know, playing golf when he was 18 months old versus Roger Federer, who did all these other sports and then came to tennis relatively late. But that, you know, both people have ended up, you know, top of their sports that you know in their careers they've accomplished a lot so one of the things he talks about is you know the fact that people who don't necessarily start off in the um profession that they land in where they feel the most comfortable is because they've like tried all these other things and that also the the innovation can come from um, because they've had these uh, this other experience in some other field that they can apply that to um, what they're currently working in. And um, and it, it actually made me think of you and your background in graphics and working in Hollywood, um, which is completely different to what you're doing now, I would imagine. But how much do you think that has helped you? I, I know sort of on the computational side of things, obviously, but aside from that, what else do you think has helped you? Because you made a complete career, career switch, correct? Yeah, it was, it was pretty complete. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I was previously, you know, making, making movies and, you know, had, had moved into even sort of management um, roles with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really um, interesting point. I mean, I'll just make a brief segue because I in, sure. in the same way I'm feeling a bit tangential and I'll come back to your direct question. But, you know, one of the interesting things during COVID that I got involved with in part because um, th there were circumstances going on in the world that happened at the same time, but also in part because it was it was sort of possible for me to do that was the um, diversity, equity and inclusion efforts um, in our, our department. So I, I chaired a task force um, looking at at uh, those issues and we, we developed a report and now actually following up, I think we're finally going to have someone to to take some of that on and start implementing it. Um, but, you know, I, I think the issue you raise is really interesting is sort of people coming in with ultimately a different perspective. And, you know, some of that can come from they were in different careers. Some can come from, you know, they, they grew up in a different country, a different culture, um, all these aspects. And, you know, I, I think it, it makes a huge difference in, in a field when you're not only sort of tolerating that, but actually encouraging it. Because um, I can't tell you, you know, you look at a lot of the stuff in any given field 
And it, you know, it, it can be very homogeneous and everyone is kind of working on the same problems and, and trying to do things the same way. And yeah, I, I suppose progress will be made that way, but it's a certain type of progress. And you know, I think it's, it's missing a lot of um, directions things could go in. And frankly, at, at Harvard, you know, it, it is something we continue to lack. People will look at a candidate and, you know, I, I think some of the criteria people are trying to use are pretty superficial as, you know, as to, to what is, is going to be diverse. But I, I think things, for instance, like someone's economic um, background and where they came from is really, really important. And, you know, we, we need to turn to these things and look at it, look at the bigger picture. As far as though, you know, my own path and, you know, what, what has been valuable. Yeah, certainly the, there's a piece, you know, as far as the, the computer science piece, as you mentioned. Um, but, you know, I, another thing that's, that's been really interesting and, and it comes up a lot is one of the things you do in Hollywood is, you know, essentially tell, telling stories and presenting, um, presenting things in a way, be it information or, or entertainment or whatever, in a way that the public, um, you know, ho hooks the public in. And science is not entirely different. In fact, I feel like increasingly um, this is becoming important, recognized as important as, you know, your clients, so to speak, aren't only other scientists, but it's the public. So this is, you know, the skill I, I did learn in my other job is sort of how to, how to make these things compelling and how to communicate them. It, it's, it's marketing on, you know, on a certain level, it's storytelling on another level. I mean, I can't tell you the number of papers I see where I think there's a good idea there, but the, you know, they just, they, they, they can't or haven't communicated in a way where I understand what the innovation, what's interesting, what's compelling. And, you know, this, you see this increasingly with funding agencies because they have to go out there and often, you know, like NIH, you know, they have to convince Congress that what they're doing is important and relevant. And it can't just be highly technical stuff, but also, you know, I think they have this tendency, everything has to translate into, oh, we're curing a disease. And I think they actually need to spend more time and energy communicating why some of these technology developments are exciting, like, you know, mRNA vaccines. Be before uh, COVID, hardly anyone had heard of them. I mean, you know, it's, it, it was and is a very exciting technology, you know, really potentially groundbreaking, but just you know, these things to the average person are not well communicated <laughs> right right i mean now nowadays you know people are like oh you need to get the pcr test and it's like <laughs> you know yeah. it's like never what i thought people would be saying the letters pcr together um yeah. you know yeah. never mind saying oh well, that's the gold standard for testing or you know yeah 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 no and i mean it, it also plays into the broader issues we were talking about before with education the population i mean you know, people understanding these things have it has an impact. It's important, right? I think when there's misunderstanding, mistrust of what's going on, it, it leads to some some really irrational and, and weird you know, behavior and, and decisions of the public. Uh, you know, I've heard the things about, you know, people are convinced the PCR tests are doing all sorts of strange things. They think the vaccine is magnetized and tracking. These are things that yeah, on the one hand, it sounds very silly to a scientist, but on the other hand, you know, I appreciate people, they, they really haven't been informed about these things. And so they're just sort of left 
on their own to speculate. Or, I mean, I, I've read some of the articles that are out there for the lay public and they're not very well written. I mean, right. I can't, uh, even, even knowing what the technology is, I can't actually piece together how it maps on to what's <laughs> actually going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, one of the things is this sort of use of jargon within science that, that, it, yeah. it, that it's actually not necessary at all, that in fact, actually a clear, concise explanation of what it is that someone is researching goes so much further than just having a whole load of jargon in there. Yeah, no, I actually, and I mean, I really emphasize this to students, I actually think usually when I read something loaded with jargon, the, the person doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, it's, it's resorting to a lot of sort of shorthand of things I don't think they understand. Some of the, the funding agencies, I think NSF has sort of a requirement like this where you have to write these abstracts that are that are supposed to be jargon-free. I mean, I don't know. The problem is I don't know who's reviewing them because I've read some that are certainly not jargon-free. But, right, you know, right. You know, I, I, I tried to do it when I wrote mine. I mean, it's sort of the idea of like, can you write this on, on a fifth grade reading level? And you can write a lot of things on a fifth grade reading level that are you know, convey very complicated information. It's just a matter you sort of have to, to go through it step by step. And as you said, not using jargon and, and, and all that. You know, and especially I think for um, the Catalyst Awards, like none of us, none of us looking at them are experts in those fields. So, you know, it's difficult to then assess that it might be something that is, like you said, that is really, really interesting, really novel, but because there's all this jargon there, you can't really quite grasp um, the concept behind it. This is the other thing I counsel students on is the person reviewing a paper or a grant is supposedly an expert in the field, but it, it comes down to what I'd call a, a theory of mind issue, to use some jargon there, but the idea, <laughs> can, you get, can you get inside someone else's head? And they're assuming that the reviewer or reader has sort of omniscient <laughs> capabilities, right? That they, they know everything about the project and every paper they've read and everything, which is ridiculous. I mean, even someone who's an expert in the field um, is not going to be able to follow something that is just loaded with, with jargon and, and lots of, you know, unnecessary technical details. That was great. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.